Well, good morning and happy to all of you for this holiday weekend. If you will, reach for a Bible or the journal that you have hopefully brought with you. If you do not have one of these journals, they are available at the exits on the side here and in the narthex and down in the Williams Center. We'd love for you to go on a special journey. The invitation of this year is for us to be able to go deep into God's Word. And in fact, we've got a little reading plan that week by week we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew in order to experience the story that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look at the significance of this whole year, we're looking at the book of Matthew to give us a detailed look at the, a close-up range, worm's eye view of the story of the gospel. And then in the latter part of the year, we're gonna be walking chapter by chapter through the letter to the church at Rome to help us to understand the significance of the good news. And last week we kicked off with Matthew chapter one. And if you turn with me, we talked about how Matthew starts off with this genealogy. And we did a little bit of a Greek lesson in understanding the obvious that the word that repeats over and over and over and over and over and over again is the word Genesis. That what we can learn about what this story is and what this story is going to teach us is that this is a story about new creation. It is a new beginning. And so what we can learn about what we're about to discover is that God is doing something new in renewing the creation. And then as we looked at this, we saw in the fact that this is how it starts and then it gets into the Christmas narratives that are so familiar to us. So it tells us a little bit about how Jesus was born from Joseph's perspective. And then we have the famous story of the, um, of the wise men following the stars to, in order to be able to come and to worship the Christ child. And so we're gonna be looking at the second half of chapter two, starting in verse 13. But before we read that together, I need to tell you about a time uh, this last year when I was on the Greek island of Patmos suffering for the Lord. Or on the Greek island of Patmos, visiting there with a group of this church because this is the spot in where the apostle John was held in prison and received the revelation that is our last book of the Bible. And there's a monastery at the very top of the hill where pilgrims have come and Christians have stayed to worship throughout all of the centuries. And it's a beautiful monastery, but it is a little bit of a maze up on the top of the hill. And so we're taking a little bit of a break and it's time for us to get back down to the boat and I tell people that I need to give them, before we get back to the boat, a little bit of a Greek lesson in order to be able to make our way out of here. That they need to be able to read the signs. And I pointed to one of the signs that was on the wall of the monastery. And I said, what does this Greek word mean? And they all said, exit. And I said, yes. But what is the Greek word that is there, and some of their Greek's a little rusty, but the word that is there for exit that they still use to this day is the word exodus. In other words, if Matthew chapter 1 is all about a new genesis, Matthew chapter 2 is all about a new exodus how Jesus is going to retrace many of the significant steps to help us to understand the fulfillment of the original promise of God's 
great good news of what he originally did through Moses, but is going to complete in Jesus Christ. So let's start reading together Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Last week when we talked about this passage, we talked about how the story begins as a new creation story and introduces us to who is this? Who is this Christ child? And we noticed in chapter 1 for some of the clues that Matthew gives us about Jesus, that he is a son of Abraham, Abraham meaning father of all nations, a father for all people, and that this is also a son of David, David the name meaning beloved, and that it is prophesied that it's told that David would have a kingdom that would never end. And so, He is a father of all for all people. He is beloved for all time. And he is a third revelation in that first chapter is that this this Jesus is an Emmanuel, God with us. And by the time we get to the second chapter, we have that famous story of the three wise men coming to bow down and to worship Jesus not as an Abraham or a David or as an Emmanuel, but their primary understanding of him being, as they said in their words, the king of the Jews. And so here we have in chapter 2, this new title of Jesus, that he is to be the king for his people. And yet there's a problem. And the tension that we see in the story is the fact that there is already a king in Israel. And this king is by the name of Herod. What you need to know about Herod is that he was both brilliant and ruthless. Herod was the person who rebuilt the temple, and so he was wildly popular for that, but he was also someone who could not be trifled with. 
Herod was the person who at one point in time when he took over for the Hasmoneans had all of his rivals of that dynasty killed. There was a time, according to Jewish history, when Herod had half of the Sanhedrin. That was kind of the 70 leaders of the religious uh, practices of Jerusalem. He had half of them killed. In addition to that, there was a time where Herod became paranoid, and he became paranoid of his wife, and so he had her killed. He also became paranoid about three of his sons, and so he had them killed. Herod had a plot and instructions that when he was to die, he was afraid that there would not be enough mourning in Israel, and so he had orders to fill the stadium full of people and to have them killed so that upon his death, there would be the greatest weeping in Israel that had ever been known. Fortunately, that order was not carried out. This is the time period and the moment in history when Jesus is born. And so here's the point. The new king has come, but the problem is the old king isn't just going to step aside. And so what Matthew chapter 2 does for us is it gives us an understanding for living in the already for not yet. Because Jesus is beginning a new exodus And in the passage that we read, there are three different snapshots that Matthew gives us, three different scenes of God with us, Emmanuel, in slavery, in tragedy, and in obscurity. And I want to introduce you to make sure that you see these in your text, but I also want to talk about them in real life and My commitment to you today is in explaining these three scenes in real life. I'm not going to talk about what I've researched or um, what I've read in a book. I want to share with you three different scenes of what I've seen as a pastor of these three forces at work. And so first, let's talk about how Jesus is with us, even in the midst of our slavery. I want you to imagine for a moment you have the the magic birth of a child and that there's nothing more beautiful than that moment for, for Mary and Joseph and savoring that and yet at the same time there is the rumblings of King Herod and his hatred and his anger and his jealousy that continues to grow. And so they are warned in a dream that they need to flee and that the only safe place for them is to go to Egypt. Imagine receiving the news that you are to retrace the steps to go to the very place where your ancestors had been enslaved for 400 years. Imagine the shame. Imagine the uncertainty. Imagine the fear of that young family with a newborn having to go all the way back to the place of their enslavement. Right after the birth of Jesus, this is what Jesus and his family do next. I want to show you a picture of what could be on the wall of any child who's been to a Sunday school class or vacation Bible school, a picture of what a craft might be from trying to learn something about God. And then here's a picture of a dorm room, which could be pretty much anywhere in the world, of kids living together. You can see the teddy bears. You can see the bedding. 
And in this third image here, a close-up shot of a Bible as well as a picture of Jesus. All of these things look perfectly normal about childhood, but what you need to know is that each one of these is pictures that I have taken on your behalf as I was standing in a home in India that is a home that is a shelter for girls as early as three years old and up through about 10 years old of girls who have been caught in the enslavement of human trafficking. These are girls that are given sanctuary from having been abused and taken away. So I want to put up the piece of art that we started with that maybe starts with a isn't that nice kind of reaction from us in our context of somebody learning something in vacation Bible school, but imagine being a child who's been trafficked and writing that God has made me loving and happy and being reminded of the promises of God that you have been called. Ephesians 4, 1 that is referenced on that screen, therefore as a prisoner of the Lord, that you are no longer a prisoner of this world and the evil people that enslaved you. And as we gathered with these children and they sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. What I saw oh so clearly in that home, in that sanctuary, is that even in one of the most horrific of situations, in the new exodus of what Jesus is doing in the world, that God is with us even in our moments of slavery. And you need to know as a pastor that, that while that might be the most extreme form of slavery, what I've experienced and what I see in us as a congregation in all kinds of different forms is that we are still experiencing slavery to sin, slavery to shame, slavery to guilt, slavery to fear, despair. There are all kinds of dark forces in this world that would threaten to enslave us. And you need to know that Jesus is doing a new creation, but in the work of that creation, he's doing a new exodus. And even in those moments when you feel trapped and you don't think there's any way out, Jesus is at work liberating his people. And so in the new exodus, God is with us in slavery, but also in the new exodus, God is with us in tragedy. For you see, one part of the Christmas story that we don't like to talk about because of the year that feels so nostalgic is that once Jesus and the Holy Family flee and go to Egypt is that there are still children who are left behind in the town of Bethlehem and in that region. Our best guess is based on what would be the population of the day and age is that Herod gave an order and anywhere from like 20 to 30 children were probably killed as a result of them trying to find and destroy the one who would be a rival king. One of the hardest things that I do as a pastor, and yet one of the most meaningful, is to have the privilege to walk alongside families who have experienced the loss 
of a death in the midst of tragedy. One of the darkest chapters of doing that that many of you have heard me reference was when I became a senior pastor for the first time at the age of 27 and six months into my tenure of being a senior pastor, I was thrust right into the tragedy of September 11th, 2001. What I'm about to show you, I've never shown in a worship service before. It is the excerpt of the 60 minutes piece of the expose on the town in which we lived and the family in my congregation that I walked alongside in their grief and their loss. At the time, it was the highest watched 60 minute segments in the history of the show. And what you're about to see is a three minute clip of the family in our congregation. This is five days after the tragedy of September 11th. Let's watch the screens. 60 Minutes Rewind. The devastation extends beyond the rubble of the World Trade Center. It goes to the heart of hundreds of communities in the suburbs of New York, where families are mourning the loss of loved ones who are still missing, places like Summit, New Jersey. In this town of 21,000 people, about 3,000 of them, 20% of the adult population, worked as bond traders, investment bankers, stockbrokers, and clerks in the Twin Towers and surrounding buildings. Town leaders say as many as 50 of them may be unaccounted for. There are few towns in America as comfortable and seemingly sheltered as Summit, New Jersey, a community where everyone knows his or her neighbors. One reason people live here is because the ride to work is so easy. 35 minutes by train to the World Trade Center. Just outside the Summit train station, officials are keeping close watch of the parking lots where some commuters who left on Tuesday morning have yet to pick up their cars, a grim sign that they may never return. Todd Ranke, a father of three young children, worked as a bond salesman at Sandler O'Neill in the World Trade Center Tower Number 2 on the 104th floor. He calls every morning when he's at work. He was on the phone with his wife, Debbie, when the first plane hit. It was a little before nine, and uh, he called and said, good morning, how are the kids, how are you? And he said, oh my God, we've been hit, something is the matter, something happened. Boy, that was loud. Mm. And I said, Todd, get out of there. I, I see fire, and it looks like it's very close to your building, get out. So you were watching this on, on television? It had just come on TV. I had the news on. I'm, I always listen to the news. Always. And it just popped up. And I said, listen to me. You've got to get out of there. And then I can't remember what happened next. What do you do next? I ask myself that every day. What can we do next? And, and uh, we regroup. and. We keep calling hospitals. We talk to people who can uh, put his picture out and, and continue to look for him, watch the news to see if anybody else has been found. And uh, we come into New York every day looking for answers. I hope you 
you find? We're a strong group and we're going to get through this. I can see that. Mm -hmm. On Friday night back in Summit, New Jersey, family members and neighbors put up a flagpole on the Rankies' front lawn. You pull it tight. Todd Jr. raised the American flag, and then the children lowered it to half-staff. Every day for three weeks, I stood in that family room with that grieving family, wondering, waiting, and praying. A family that was desperate and a family that was longing for any word of hope. I went to their family Bible that was on the shelf and opened it up to Psalm 23 and said, every day we will pray, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. God is with you, even in the deepest moments of tragedy. And so God is with us in slavery, God is with us in tragedy. And finally, in the new Exodus, we learn in the third scene of Matthew chapter 2 that God is with us in obscurity. The first scene is of one Jesus going to Egypt. The second scene is of one of Herod unleashing his power in the slaughter of the innocents. And the third scene is of King Herod dying and the Holy Family returning and not settling in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem, but in a place so obscure that the Jewish historian Josephus, when he's listing the towns of Galilee, doesn't even list the town of Nazareth. Jesus grew up in a place that was virtually not on the map. This is where he spent the vast majority of his days, of his years. I want to show you a picture of a place that is meaningful and sacred to me. Every year since I was born, all the way till I was 25 years old, I went to this place. It is a jewel in the midst of the Texas Hill Country. It's known as Mo Ranch. And on the river, you can swim, you can canoe, and this is where our family went to camp and even our youth group went to camp. And when I got to the time of being in college, I went to this camp for the first time, not as a camper, but as a youth leader. And we would gather in this auditorium here, we would worship, we would hear from a message, we would pray, and then we'd break apart into small group rooms. It was the first time that I was a leader and I had this small group of junior high boys and girls and there was this one girl in that small group, no matter what question I asked, no matter what activity that I did, she was from a small town in Arkansas, she never said a single word 
in any of the small groups for any of the five days until we got to the last day. On the last day of that junior high camp, a part of the message was about that passage, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And as we got back to the small group on the last day, tears began to fall down her face. She apparently wasn't a part of the youth group. She had just been invited by a friend. She grew up in a, in a no-name kind of town in Arkansas. And she had tears in her eyes because for the first time in her life, she felt like she was seen, she was known, and she was loved. Both by God and by the people in that little community that even in the midst of her silence, regularly through words and actions says, we see you. One of the things that I notice regularly is that even in the midst of great success, people can feel incredibly alone. And that you can feel like you are in the midst of obscurity. Do you realize that Jesus sees you, knows you, and loves you even in the midst of your obscurity and part of the incarnation of God becoming flesh and coming to dwell among us is not that he lived in the most popular place and in a palace, but he lived in an out-of-the-way town to show us that there's no place that's off of God's radar. And so in the new Exodus, in what is Matthew chapter 2, he builds on what happens in Genesis of this new creation. Genesis, 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 Genesis. And then when we get into Matthew chapter 2, do you see what Matthew is doing? Is he is reenacting and helping us to see the fulfillment of what is happening in the new Exodus. That in the midst of slavery and tragedy and obscurity, that God is with you. And one of the things that we can discover is that the way that the first chapter ends in a very intentional way is it says as the bridge that his name is Jesus. So let me put this together for you. What we shared with you earlier is that as Matthew unfolds the gospel, he says that this is a son of Abraham, that he's the father of all people, that he's the son of David, that he's beloved for all time, that he's Emmanuel, that is God with us, and that his name is Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God rescues. In other words, yes, we have the promise that God is Emmanuel with us, even in the places of slavery and tragedy and obscurity of what is still happening in the kingdoms of this world. But what is happening in the new Exodus is that God doesn't just meet you in these places, but that God is beginning the work of his kingdom coming on earth as it is in the heavens. And that God's rescue effort is underway. And that he who begins this good work will see it to the very completion. And the last thing that you need to understand that as God entrusts Jesus not only into a particular moment of history, but the way that God entrusts Jesus into the world, that God didn't bring Jesus into isolation, that God didn't trust Jesus to an organization or an institution, but that God brought Jesus into the world and had him enter into through a family. The holy family of a mother and a father 
a family with really complicated family dynamics. And so if Jesus enters into a history, that means he comes into our messy histories, and that if Jesus is going to enter into our lives, he's going to enter into a family. He will enter into your family. One of the more beautiful things that I noticed when I was in India, do you remember the artwork that I shared with you earlier of that little child's bed and the disc from those girls who have been trafficked? Is that as we gathered with those girls and they led us in worship, they led us in singing and in praying, when the girls had all left and I looked up, I didn't notice in the windows, I took this picture that in each of the windows there is a letter that says family. The church at its core is not primarily an organization or an institution, but as a family. The gospel is contained and lived out, broken as we may be, dysfunctional as we may be, in the family container. And that the church should not shy away from investing in and being a part of building up and helping marriages and families and all of these things to work together. That if God's method of entrusting Jesus to earth is through a family, so too we ought not to abandon that method in a modern day and age when people just want to jettison the idea of family. The gospel recasts and reshapes our understanding of family. The gospel wants to enter into your family and mine so that our histories are redeemed in an entirely new way. Because we will need family desperately as we struggle with the kings of this world that will still threaten to try to undo us. The powers that would want to undermine us. There is another king, there is another family, there is another way to live, and this king is named Jesus, and he is coming, and he is here, but the kings of this world will not step aside so easily. My friends, we still need the exodus. Not an exit from this world, but an exit from the destruction of this world where tragedy will become triumph, where slavery will become freedom and obscurity becomes a new kind of family. God is doing a new creation. He is also beginning a new exodus. And God will be with you in those moments and he will begin his rescue promise. And for us as a church, we get to be a part of that movement. And so let us pray. Father, we begin by praying for the clarity of understanding who you are, that you are the king of this world and that your kingdom is unfolding. And we pray for those who are in slavery right now, O God, especially for the 40 million people 
who are estimated to be in a modern-day form of slavery. Help us to embody your presence with them and to participate in their rescue. We also pray for a world that still experiences tragedy. We particularly pray for the forms of that in this world, like in South Sudan and the Ukraine, where there are still there are still figures who strive to kill. In the midst of their loss, will you be with them and may the rescued effort begin. And Lord, I pray for anybody who feels like they are unseen, unknown, and unloved who wonders if anything can, good can come out of where they are. Be for us both Emmanuel and Joshua. Renew this church family and help us to become a different kind of family. And most of all, may we follow you out of Egypt. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said.